Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Coming up on today's programme, the UK local elections will take place in the next few weeks and we're going to examine the political landscape and assess the implications of those elections for Boris Johnson and for his government. We'll be talking to Will Hutton of The Guardian. Roman Abramovich has become the very public face of Russian oligarchy, but who exactly is the man? We'll hear the incredible story of his rise from poverty to become a billionaire, the owner of one of the biggest football clubs in the world and an ally of the Kremlin. And finally, a PwC report has found that most companies here in Ireland are not willing to take any significant drop in profits in pursuit of their climate goals. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. But first up today, the UK local elections are going to take place on the 5th of May, but they happen against a very difficult backdrop for this Tory government prime minister who's been fined for breaking the law. And Boris Johnson now faces a parliamentary investigation into claims that he misled the House of Commons um, about the Partygate scandal after Conservative MPs yesterday uh, rebelled against the government's attempt to thwart the probe. Meanwhile, voters are struggling with the real cost of living issues. But what will the local elections mean for Boris Johnson and for his government? I'm joined now by Will Hutton, who's political economist and columnist for The Observer and The Guardian newspaper. Will, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today on News Talk. Great to be here. Well, before we get stuck into the politics of it all, I do want to ask you something about the local elections themselves. We're very simple here in Ireland. We just have local elections every five years. They tie in with the European elections and we sometimes throw in the odd referendum. But the the local election cycle in the UK is quite different. What is actually happening on the 5th of May? What will people be voting on? We will be voting in uh, county council, county council, local authority uh, elections uh, in different parts of uh, of England and Wales and Scotland and um, and Northern Ireland actually, uh, where there's also an election, of course. Of course. Uh, and um, it's a it's a different electoral cycle from um, the uh, parliamentary elections. Um, they they happen every five years, um, and they happen in different parts of the country, so that. Um, uh, we're not voting, for example, um, for the London mayor, and that, that's on a different timescale. I mean, it's part of the unwritten British constitution, but essentially um, the bulk of the um, county councillors uh, and local authority uh, uh, um, councillors um, in England um, will be voting um, on uh, in that first week of May, May the 5th, and that's... Uh, and it is a barometer of opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, back in, um, it ha- I have to say that the uh, that back in um, 2017, the, the Tories were at a very low ebb, um, and uh, if they lose seats um, from that very low ebb uh, uh, over and above what they lost then, it'll be very very bad indeed for them, um, and the, they will lose um, uh, local authorities. For example, I mean, uh, in London. It, um, uh, for Irish listeners, this is getting a bit recondite. But anyway, in London, um, they've always held the London Borough of Wandsworth, uh, which is south of the river, uh, south of the Thames in, in South London. And it's been one of the kind of tribute, iconic um, Tory councils, uh, kind of path 
breaking um, in Tory eyes uh, in being quite innovative in trying to kind of reduce the, um, the, the council tax and contract out public services and all the rest of it. It's almost certain they'll lose control mm. of that. And that, is, and that is that is a bit like, you know, um, the monkers leaving the Rock of Gibraltar or... Uh, I mean, it's <laughs> or Sinn Féin holding power in both Northern Ireland and, and the Republic. I mean, that is a big deal mm. uh, um, in Tory eyes. So that's what we're that's what we're confronting. Um, yeah, and that Sinn Féin holding power in both the North and South is something we, we might talk about later. It's it's not that it, it possibly is not that far away. Um, with these local elections, you know, looking at polls can be very sporadic. What is the general sense of how the Tory party will do, how the Labour party will do? Is there any sort of um, benchmark against which Boris Johnson will be held or Keir Starmer on foot of the results of these elections? Um, well, of course, we're in the game of expectation management. Um, I mean, the pollsters are saying that... Um, the Tories can expect to lose between 500 and 800 seats. Um, uh, uh, if they do lose that many, I mean, what will happen is, is that Boris Johnson will say, well, there we are. It was only expected. It's a midterm kind of blues uh, uh, in line with expectations. What's the problem? Um, if, it, if they lose more than that, I, I mean, I, I think it's uh, an another fine. I think, and when the Privileges Committee kind of bring and produce their um, report on Johnson, which can only be uh, that he was he misled Parliament to some degree. I think his I think his time is up. So I mean, it's a it's a it's a it's going to be a kind of um, kind of bookmark mm. on the on the kind of downward path of uh, Boris Johnson. But you know, because it was such a kind of low ebb um, all those years ago, um, uh, and because actually the Tory opinion poll. And kind of support is holding at around 33-34% and Labour's only at 40. That, that's not a big enough lead Labour have over um, the Tories to guarantee the kind of result that um, would need to happen um, for Johnson really to have a kind of body blow. Mm. And what of the Labour Party? Um, Keir Starmer's performance uh, over the last year and a half has been criticised from time to time. They had that awful uh, election result in, in Hartlepool for, for the Labour Party in the, the by-election. What, what was, is expected of, of them in, in this upcoming election? To win seats. I mean, really, they, they, yeah. to win. they have to win seats. I mean, they have, to win, uh, they have to win lots of council seats and they have to win control of uh, county councils, in, which will be extraordinary because they're, they're nearly always conservative. Um, and certainly they need to do well in, in all the kind of metropolitan areas in the country and they need to pick up you know between 300 to 500 councillors um at, as a minimum i mean i think they'll do that and mm -hmm. um, one of the interesting things about about keir starmer is, is the nadir of his fortunes um was losing um the uh uh the hartlepool by-election last may i mean that that was and had he gone on to lose Batley and spence um which is a constituency in yorkshire which an election that was held um six or eight weeks later, um, uh, that would have been curtains for him. He was really uh, in trouble. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, famously, a week is a long time in politics. Mm -hmm. We are, you know, less than a year later, and the situation has been transformed. He's widely perceived as having regained control of the Labour Party from the Corbynites. Um, so that's to his credit. He's repositioned the party um, 
politically. Um, it's much more mainstream, a kind of moderate center left rather than kind of Corbynite left. Um, and he, I, I have to say, he's, and, I, and I'm, I'm only repeating uh, what, again, a number of political commentators in the UK are saying that he's handled this crisis. He's come really out, out of this crisis really well. His speech in the House of Commons um, on this debate, which um, uh, this, parla this parliamentary motion on Thursday evening, which uh, the Tories lost. I mean, they, you know, the, they simply didn't have the votes to kind of um, uh, try to kick the whole thing into the long grass and ran out the white flag. And I mean, it was extraordinary the number of junior ministers um, and, uh, uh, and and principal parliamentary secretaries who indicated to the to the Tory whips they would either abstain or vote against the government. They couldn't stomach mm. defending defensible. Um, and so, you know, the, the you know, Starmer's kind of ability to kind of make speeches uh, in the Commons, which actually speak to the country, uh, has been uh, and, and managed to speak to kind of one nation, decent Tories, has been um, a kind of a, a, something of a political coup, actually. I mean, you know, he's, he's really, he can stand and say, you know, that, that Tory MPs have lost confidence in their prime minister, without really people gainsaying him. And he has been um, one of the principal elements in engineering that position. Mm. And maybe his steady as you go demeanor is a good antidote to Boris himself, who kind of, you know, is this a larger than life character. Maybe after someone like him, a figure like Keir Starmer could be exactly what the public actually vote for. Well, I, there is a, I think people, I think the Tory party are growing weary and certainly the, I think the electorate are growing, are growing weary of, you know, Johnson's habit of kind of like a, like a kind of pugnacious um, kind of um, columnist, which is actually his origins, of picking fights everybody. You know, he wants mm. to pick a fight now with the European Union over Northern Ireland, uh, wants to kind of suspend some of the protocols we read. He wants picking a fight with the Archbishop of Canterbury, picks a fight with the BBC, you know, uh, picks a fight with the French, picks a fight. Uh, I want to, uh, interestingly, um, some of the Tories are, uh, really quite concerned about the degree to which this this kind of picking of fight is going, because some of the draft ads that were to back that were to support the um, this controversial policy about sending asylum seekers back to Rwanda, mm -hmm. we're, re we're we're going to target Labour MPs and say this man this woman uh, um, wants migrants to die in the Channel um, and wants to um, uh, open our doors to migrants, um, and in in today's atmosphere, you know, where you get people. Uh, you know, we've had two MPs have been killed. Mm -hmm. uh, and a number of Tories were saying, hold on a minute, you know, if we get a couple of Labour MPs that are uh, attempted assassination attempts on them as a result of this kind of advertising, I don't want to, I don't want to be part of that kind of politics. And I, I, I think Johnson is kind of, you know, he is a, he, he, he's not only kind of, you know, bumptious and wants to belong to power and actually lies. He's also, um, there's, there's an element of Johnson, which is, you know, no, you'll do anything to stay in power. Mm. And, and if, if there's um, I mean, if there's collateral damage as a consequence of some of this political advertising, well, too bad. And people don't like it. There are a number of there are a number of um, junior ministers, um, uh, a couple of whom I know actually, uh, who certainly kind of think along those lines. Yes, um, and that policy you mentioned um, in relation to Rwanda is quite an ugly extension of the Brexit policy of taking back control. Do you think that is designed to speak to the Tory base ahead of these local elections, 
Well, a number of people, a number of Tories are saying, and Johnson's trouble is that he thinks that this is this is an appeal to the whole country. The trouble is, is it is it appeal is it appeal to some parts of the country but not others? Mm. I mean, uh, I, I mean, I, I I've been taken aback by the degree to which not just the Archbishop of Canterbury but actually mainstream opinion um, in Britain uh, is appalled by this. I mean, everybody mm. I spoke to on the day it was announced. Um, just said, you know, not in my name. I'm appalled. I'm shamed. You know, and it was, you know, it was all in the street or kind of, you know, a builder. I mean, you're not talking about, you know, um, people in the Westminster bubble. You're talking about, you know, ordinary men and women uh, going about their business. And actually, there's a massive majority in the country against it. Um, and so he, he's one of the, his mistakes he's making, I think, mm. is to kind of think that, you know, because the right wing press, the Mail Express, Telegraph, and Sun are kind of broadly Tory, uh, and the active part of the Tory party in the House of Commons is on the right, that that's the constituency he has to appeal to. Actually, it's a cardinal error. That constituency, as Marine Le Pen is discovering in France, uh, is not that big, actually. And people talk in France about the Republican front, um, Macron, the kind of mainstream socialist, mainstream right, kind of coming together to kind of beat Le Pen, you know, 55, 45, maybe even 60, 40 on Sunday. There's that kind of majority in Britain against Johnson, actually, mm. and policy on Rwanda. And that's another element, actually, in why he's actually kind of, uh, I think, on the slide. He will not lead the party to the next general election. No question about it, in my view. So if you look at um, his downward spiral, I suppose where he's at now is he's misjudging the mood of the public, uh, as you say there, in relation to those type of policies. He's also misjudging mm. the support he has within his party, that he can't get the MPs to, to move forward. Is one of the reasons he's still in his position the lack of uh, an obvious successor? Yes, I mean, I, I think that's true. Um, and I think, uh, you know, Rishi Sunak's um, travails, um, you know, uh, married to a non-dom, not declaring that he had a green card. I mean, amazing that British Chancellor the Exchequer should be married mm. to a woman who's not paying her UK taxes and himself declares a citizen of another country. I mean, I mean, blimey. Um, it was even too much the Conservative Party in the Daily Mail to stomach, you know? Yeah. Um, and he just showed a lack of political judgment. My bigger charge against Sunak actually is, is his spring budget, where actually you cannot be inactive in the face of a cost of living crisis of this magnitude and, a, and, a, and mounting recessionary clouds of this magnitude. You have to demonstrate to the public at large that you're, you know, that you, that you're trying at least to have their back. Um, and, and Sunak did not do that. He wanted to have uh, tax cuts in 2024 was his, was his preference. And it was a, such a silly, he shouldn't have made his preference for that so public. So yes, I mean, the fact that he's out of the picture as a potential successor has helped Johnson a bit. But actually what was interesting last night and you'll see it in the uh in you know, various uh, tory mps and and quite and some quite see some quite kind of big beasts i mean mm. the chairs chairs of cross-party parliamentary committees you know saying saying look you know the idea that you you can't lose a prime minister because there's no successor or you can't lose a prime minister because uh, there's a war in ukraine is ridiculous you know we've lost you know britain has changed prime ministers in the middle of wars before in which we've been directly involved not one which we're involved by proxy and actually um of course there's going to be someone who can come who'll come forward and do the job perfectly well i mean i mean no one's indispensable as uh, i think it was the chair of the um the Constitutional Committee in the House of Commons said, Mr. Rag. So there we go. I mean, I, 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 I think, but, uh, notwithstanding the lack of a 
successor. I mean, Tory opinion is hardening, hardening. And so it should. I mean, I, I um, you know, it's very difficult, of course, because, you know, I, I mean, I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm critical of, 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 of Brexit Tories. I think it was a, so in, in that respect, I mean, um, you know, in, in, a, in a British kind of political context, people would say, well, Will's, you know, a good guy and all the rest of it, but he's really a Remainer. So, you know, discount what he says. But even, uh, even uh, and I am, I readily acknowledge, I, I think leaving the European Union was a mistake. But uh, um, uh, I, I, notwithstanding that, I mean, I, all of us, um, from whatever political perspective you have, kind of recognize that, that the House of Commons, you know, you can't mislead the House of Commons, you know. And actually there are a bunch of protocols and informal protocols that have existed over the years that have sustained that position. And here we have a prime minister who's trying to drive a coach and horses through it. And actually the Conservative Party at bottom, even though it got taken over to a degree by the Brexit party, at bottom remains a custodian of Britain's unwritten constitution and its unwritten protocols. And they know that damn well. And, and actually it's taking them some time, but finally they've decided we've got to stand by the constitution. It's a bigger thing than, 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 than party loyalties to, to a prime minister. And that was something, Will, when we spoke in February, you were very conscious of that, that this had not dawned on uh, the Conservative Party. So maybe that reality is, is dawning on them now. Um, can I turn finally to get your views um, in relation to their views and their position on the Northern Ireland Protocol? Um, they have been threatening the European Union uh, and Northern Ireland with triggering Article 16. And this week, a new uh, intervention by Jacob Rees-Mogg, who now wants to scrap the entire thing. What's your views on this? Why is this happening? And, and what do you think they're likely to do? The genesis of um, Brexit for people like Jacob Rees-Mogg and many leading Brexit Tories um, was this question of sovereignty. Um, and actually, um, the unwritten constitution, which they're trying to protect, um, um, is very good for conservatives. It's first past the post system um, for kind of over the last since 1918, Tories have been in control in Britain. You know, for every one year, Labour's been in control. Uh, the Tories have been in control two years. But um, membership of the European Union meant that there was another bunch of politicians in Brussels who were kind of uh, uh, laying claim to rulemaking in Britain and disturbing this kind of cosy sovereignty that Tories have in these islands. And uh, what's happening in Northern Ireland is all about that. And the compromise um, uh, that the Good Friday Agreement rested on, which is that uh, essentially Northern Ireland could look kind of both, both to um, Westminster and to Dublin, um, to the UK and to the Republic. Um, and that, you know, one day, um, if it ever happened, um, there was a... Um, a popular majority to kind of detach itself from the UK and kind of attach itself in some form. Um, and it's interesting, some of the constitutional kind of formula that are being thought about uh, with the Republic, then that would be, that could happen. Now, you know, that's always stuck in the DUP's extremists kind of crawl. And now with the Northern Ireland Protocol, they have a, they have a kind of stick to beat um, the British government, the, the British government with a British government of different hue, 
Yeah, but do you think, well, do you think that they give any consideration to how this looks for them in an international sense, trying to do deals with other nations when they're just ripping up uh, constitutionally recognized documents, international agreements? Um, I'm sure that the Foreign Secretary knows that, Liz Truss. I'm sure that the, um, the, um, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office know that. I'm sure that um, One Nation Tories know that. All the opposition parties know that. You know, Johnson is a rogue prime minister going rogue um, in the same way that he's perfectly happy to uh, issue attack ads on political opponents that might lead to um, you know, really unpleasant violence against them. He's equally happy to pick a, a, a battle um, with the Irish Republic and with the European Union over Northern Ireland in the hope it'll appease his base. I mean, this is a man, you know, I think everyone should realize who they're dealing with. I mean, he's going rogue on us. Mm -hmm. um, and um, he may bring the house down uh, before he finally goes. And we have to make sure that actually we keep our lines open, that people know that um, Britain, that Boris Johnson does not speak for Britain, um, for the totality of Britain, he doesn't even speak for the totality of his party. And I, I hope that Brussels, I hope that Dublin, and I hope that uh, citizens in the Irish Republic, you know, know that. Um, we just, you know, it's going to be a difficult six or nine months, but we will get through it. Well, Will, um, your contribution has been insightful as ever, and we really do appreciate you taking the time with us today. We'll watch those figures on the 6th of May when they come in. <laughs> but for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Will Hutton, political economist and columnist for The Observer and Guardian newspaper. Will, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. I enjoyed the questions. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. And coming up next, do Irish companies really care about corporate governance and environmental standards? Welcome back. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, modern society and the marketplace is demanding that companies take account of their own role in the world and not just the aim of making profits. But how seriously are companies actually taking all of this? PwC have surveyed Irish CEOs and they found that the majority of Irish companies still haven't made carbon neutral plans. And they've also found that an even larger majority were not willing to take any significant drop in profits in pursuit of their ESG goals. I'm joined now by by Fiona Gaskin, who's PwC's ESG Leader for Assurance and Reporting. Fiona, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. So Fiona, just remind us to start off, what exactly are ESG targets and what did your survey find? Sure. So ESG stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. Cover a huge range of things. So most people will be very familiar with the likes of climate change. So looking at emissions, also water, so they all fall within the environmental piece, but there's also social pieces like diversity and inclusion. And within governance, there's pieces like tax transparency um, and just overall good practice on governance. So really wide range of issues there. And it's about, I suppose, setting metrics for each one of those and targets. And they'll be quite individual for different companies in terms of what makes sense for them and what's important to them. And this survey that you did, what did you find? So we found that ESG was certainly getting a lot more attention than it has in the past, which is great. 54% of companies are building climate change into their strategy. That's up from 32% last year. So that's, that's brilliant. I think what we're seeing is a little bit of a lag in terms of then actually building that into the likes of the metrics and the targets and the remuneration strategies. So, for example, if we look at the number of CEOs who have incentives um, based targets related to emissions, that's only down at 
Right. So a little bit of a lag there. And as you know, you know, pay follow strategy. So, you know, it's really around embedding ESG topics into the normal strategy of the company is just hugely important. And then from that should flow what's important to monitor and then what's how do you incentivize? Given the um, emphasis that we've seen on climate change and climate action over the last number of years, are you surprised at the low levels of compliance and how unprepared business are? Is it just a bit of lip service that, that companies are engaging in in relation to what they're doing on those three important elements? I think the the evolution in the last year and a half, two years has just been phenomenal. So I would absolutely say prior to that, lots of lots of companies were more doing lip service. It was more kind of greenwashing, talking about the things that were nice to talk about and made them look good. The last two years has been a phenomenal shift in what companies are doing. And I think the, the low levels are more reflective of the fact that this is a complex issue and you can't just overnight turn it into and, something really straight. You know. And Fiona, do you think, though, that there might be an element that there's a pandemic, the war in Ukraine is happening. We're dealing with increased uh, inflation, stagflation indeed, that businesses are sort of looking at this and saying, well, actually, my priority is my business. My priority is profit. This sustainable environmental stuff, that can wait. Do you not think that there's an element of that in these figures? I think that there's more an element of companies haven't fully grappled with exactly how ESG is a lens on their strategy. So you're, you shouldn't have a separate ESG strategy. You should be looking at your business and thinking, Right, if climate change comes to pass the way it's expected to, what exactly will that mean for my business? Will people want to buy the products I'm still making or will they be switching to different types of products? I, you know, Do I need to fundamentally change my business model? Yeah, and that's an interesting point because most consumers, we want to do the right thing, whether yeah. it's about buying products or whether it's about investing indeed. So there's there's a lot of suspicion creeping in around the authenticity of what companies are claiming. How do companies avoid seeming like they're simply greenwashing? So I think there's there's a couple of different things. Firstly, it's some of that risk is going to be alleviated by all of the new EU regulations coming down the track. So companies don't get a choice about what they want to report. They have to report on specific topics. Part of one of those regulations is around auditors giving assurance over some of those metrics. So again, there'll be a level of robustness and accuracy of those metrics that we haven't seen before to the point where really they should be on par with your financial reporting. So if you're claiming you have a million or a billion revenue, whatever it might be, and you're claiming X amount of tonnes of carbon, you should have the same confidence in those numbers because they're both going to be audited. And I think that will help a lot with kind of fears of greenwashing. And as companies approach this strategy as part of their business plan, um, what should they look at when they're trying to reduce their own uh, emissions and their carbon footprint? Yeah, so I think the first thing is they need to get a handle on what is their own carbon footprint, which uh, might sound a little bit easier than it is. But there's a there's some great you know tools out there. So the greenhouse gas protocol is definitely the one to start with. It ex- it explains different scopes. So you've got scope one, two, and three. And scope one are things that the organization can directly affect itself. So what emissions do you have from your manufacturing, from your own company cars, from fleets of transportation vehicles that you run yourself? So those things are things that you're able to control and manage. Then the second scope is around purchased electricity. So, you know, you've got, you know, premises or factories, they're using electricity. What is involved in the, what emissions are involved in providing that electricity? And then the third scope is all around the other indirect ones, so up and down your value chain. And what's really interesting about that is 
you have to engage with people, other organisations. And it's it's really good when you see companies do this properly because they learn from each other, but they're also putting pressure on each other. And really, that's how the, the dial is moving. So it includes everything from, you know, business travel to, you know, goods that are maybe how they actually get to you in the first place, what emissions are. OK, so take a big company like yours, PwC. What type of measures do you see internally in your company that are striving towards targets like these? Yeah, so we have, within PwC, we have a net zero commitment by 2030, which is really ambitious. Um, and we obviously have to put in lots of different measures to try and meet that in terms of cutting emissions. That's one of, of many things. So we also, you know, have different targets that we'd like around gender diversity, inclusion, all of those types of things as well. So again, and to be honest, as we see the the kind of the war for talent and people being, mm. you know, looking for that, they, they are so important. Every graduate interview I do, this comes up in terms of asking us, well, you know, what, what's PwC's stance on this? And it's really important to to people now more than ever that the values of the company that they're looking to, to yes, work for align yeah. with their own. And I think that's a danger when you're talking about ESG. A lot of us tend to focus on the E and forget about the S and the G, but it's a package, isn't it? It, it is a package. And you're right, like there has been a huge focus on the E and in a way that makes sense because we have a, you know, a catastrophe waiting to happen mm. in terms of, of the climate or already started. But more and more social issues are, are coming up all the time. And in fact, all the different, you know, COVID, for example, was in a way a, a good accelerator in terms of relooking at those. Mm. So, you know, fairness across different social groups and people working from home and, you know, just lots of social issues that came with that. So there's different things that will drive it at different stages. But certainly if I look at it from an EU standpoint as well, they've also focused quite heavily to start with on the environmental, but we've already seen social and governance is coming down the track very quickly and they have particular regulations coming out in the, in the next year or so that are very much targeted at those areas. Okay, so um, how does a company uh, drive its sustainability targets through its own business strategy? How do they integrate both of those? Yeah, so I think the important thing is about understanding what... ESG issues are important to your company. So it's about doing a materiality assessment. Um, then you're doing that always in the context of what your own strategy is and what your business is and where you're going. So it's going to be very different company on company. So you have a company strategy and ESG should be mapped on top of that. Is that what so you mean? So they, they should really be in, like fully intertwined, definitely not separate documents mm. that live and breathe. And even things like how you assess an ESG risk should be as closely aligned to how you assess a cyber risk or a risk of, you know, losing a facility or anything else. They should be very much intertwined in terms of how you do it. Otherwise, they're not comparable. You mm. get to the problem at the end, you don't know which ones are the most important. So it's about looking at them together and then it's around building that into actually transforming your business. So if that means you need a business model, need different products, need to do things a different way, it's fine. It, they're just a transformation project like any other transformation project. It's just because it maybe has a slightly different driver than ones companies are more used to. But it's very much like this should be seen very much as business as usual. Um, but the figures are showing that it's not being integrated. That That's the reality of, of what your survey is showing us. Um, so we might look for a second at the business side of things if people were to fail to embrace these uh, targets. Are there any consequences if companies and businesses don't start to take these uh, initiatives seriously? Yeah, so there's a, a couple of different um, consequences, I think. 
Firstly is, and we already touched on it a little bit, it's about how competitive you are versus your peers. So Mm -hmm. is it going to damage your brand if you can't stack up against your peers? Um, And that includes things like, can you actually attract employees or are they going again, are they going elsewhere? And are employees making decisions based on things like this? Are they looking at your corporate policy on ECG as talent gets, as the talent pool is, is smaller and it's a much more competitive market now. Is this something that candidates are really looking at? They, they absolutely are, especially you know, the kind of younger generations very much line up their, their values to looking at the company's values and, and going with that. The, the other piece that's really important is certain companies operate in sectors that are going to have carbon budgets. Mm. So coming, you know, coming down from the Irish government all the way down, so if you can't handle your emissions within that, there's going to be a financial cost to that. Mm. And, you know, lots of companies are already doing things like you know, using like a, what's called a shadow or an internal price of carbon. So they're factoring it into their decisions now as if they were paying it so that they're actually considering what the world is going to be like when they really have to pay much higher levels of carbon tax than they might now. Yeah, and talk to me about that new measurement standard for carbon emissions. How does that work for a company? I suppose there's a couple of different aspects to it. So, you know, you have to measure your carbon in terms of being able to report it under lots of different reporting obligations some of which are around the Irish government and, you know, looking at their the overall carbon budget. But actually most of it is from the EU, to be honest. It's, you know, pressure coming there. And that information has been fully kind of intertwined with your annual report and how it works. The mechanics of how you do it are very much aligned with the, in general, with the greenhouse gas protocol that I mentioned earlier. So there's a very set way to do it. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Fiona Gaskin from PwC. So is this the first year that many companies will be facing this type of reporting on their own emissions? So certainly a number of Irish companies last year who were listed in the UK as premium listed companies had to report under something called uh, the Task Force for Climate Related Financial Disclosures, which is an awful mouthful. So <laughs> we say TCFD instead. But that was that was the first time that com- that we've really seen Irish companies being forced to do something. So some had done it voluntarily Mm. already, but it's different when you actually have to do it and have to do it very stringently. And as part of that, it had a piece around emissions. Well, actually, we've worked with a couple of different companies who who had to report for the first time under TCFD this year. And out of all the the work I've done over the years on different regulations and in all different areas, it's the one where I would say to any company, it's worth having a look at, and even from on a voluntary basis, because what it did was it gave companies a great discipline in terms of looking at what's our impact on the environment, but what's the environment's impact on us? And it really got into that strategy piece and working it back in. And really interesting, like we had great discussions with boards about what would it mean if there was a certain temperature rise? What would it mean for everything from crops growing to migration of people in the world? And what did that mean for their business? So really tangible things. So mm-hmm. I think if, if anybody was looking at this topic and they don't know, a lot about it, I would say have a read of even the high level of the TCFD framework. There's some really good practical pieces in there about how you would consider climate risk. You sound a bit like you're selling a tax return there, Fiona. (laughs) I'm not quite convinced, but um, I'll take your word for it. Uh, So have you identified some other ways in which uh, companies can take some simple steps towards being ESG compliant? Yeah, so in terms of being ESG compliant, I would say the first thing is around you know, decide, really being clear on how is it relevant to your strategy. So again, that piece about what's important to you. Then it's about really integrating it back into your business. So it's just another thing. It's not something off to the side. 
like everything else, if you're going to put in something new, you need good governance on it. You need to be reporting on the things that matter. And actually, that's a that's a, a bit of a trouble spot for a lot of companies in that the quality of the data or the availability and accuracy of it isn't there. And, you know, if in terms of any any pain point for companies, I would say that's probably one of the top ones in terms of just being able to gather that data. And once you're actually clear on all of that, it's about how do you actually tell a story that is authentic and transparent and doesn't have any hint of greenwashing in it. Um, And that's really important because as important as it is to do the right thing, it's also very important to make sure that you're communicating that in in an impactful way. Because, you know, stakeholders between investors, employees, uh, the government, customers, these are all people who are interested in hearing your story. Um, So you need to think about what their requirements are for their own reporting and how they're assessing you and what's the important things that you want to get across. And ultimately, it's not going to be a choice. You have to do it. So it's better to start now and start early. Well, um, thank you very much for taking the time to share that uh, very good advice with us. It seems that there's still a bit of a way to go on this for Irish companies. But for now, we leave it there. That's Fiona Gaskin, who's PwC's ESG leader for assurance and reporting. Fiona, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up next, we'll hear the rags to riches story of Roman Abramovich. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, Roman Abramovich has become the very public face of a very private Russian oligarchy. But who exactly is he? To find out more about the shadowy Bavarian tycoon, I'm joined now by Jason Corcoran, who's a journalist specialising in Russian affairs. Jason, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today on News Talk. Hi, Mandy. Now, straight off the pages of a Dickens novel, Abramovich was orphaned early in life. Can you talk us through how he started out and who raised him? Uh, yeah, it's, like a lot of the oligarchs, he has very modest origins. Uh, he was born in 66 and he grew up in the frigidly cold Komi Republic, which is in uh, Russia's north. Both his parents tragically died uh, young when he was three and four and he was brought up by relatives. And then funnily enough, his, his grandparents on his m- mother's side were both from Ukraine and his grandmother had fled the Nazis after the Second World War. And he's Jewish, isn't he himself? He's Jewish, yeah, and he's a he's a patron of many Jewish uh, charitable interests, both in Russia and in Israel. And he has Israeli citizenship, of course. Now, Jason, you've met him. What's your sense of the man? Um, yeah, I've been in the same room as him while we were conducting interviews with a big team while I was at Bloomberg. But he's he's a very he's a very sort of shy guy, despite the ostentatious wealth. And the huge amount of yachts and a fleet of, of sports cars. He's very diffident and he doesn't look at you directly in the eyes and he doesn't like public speaking. So he's kind of a guy who sort of, despite all of his wealth, he sort of, he sort of sits in the shadows and he, he works the back channels and he's, he's a conduit between the Kremlin and, and Western elites. Yeah, he's always struck me as a very kind of closed guy. Even when he bought Chelsea that time, he never seems to extract any pleasure out of going to the games. He looks very demure. Um, so can you just take us back to how his business first started out? Yeah, so he started out sort of as a wheeler, a dealer during the wild 1990s in Russia. And uh, he, he, he was selling uh, goods in the black markets and he was a, a toy manufacturer and uh, he was selling uh, plastic ducks of out things. of his apartment. <laughs> and uh, his big break came, Andy, when he met with Boris Berezovsky, 
Berezovsky during the 90s, during the Yeltsin era, was the grey cardinal. So Berezovsky and Abramovich cooked up a plan to set up Sibneft, which was one of the one of the two biggest oil holdings at the time in Russia. And they took part in the very shadowy uh, Kremlin auctions, privatization auctions. And they spent something like $240 million uh, to acquire this oil holding in 95. And then he was asked to sell it 10 years ago by 10 years later, 2005 by Putin. But because he was compliant, he got market price, which was 7.5 billion. So roughly a 7 billion plus profit. Now, buying Sipnet, as you said, there was a very shrewd business move, but he also made a very smart political move after Yeltsin left and Putin took over. What were those years uh, like for uh, Abramovich? So, yeah, Putin famously had a meeting in 2000 when he entered the Kremlin. He sat down with the oligarchs, the, the main oligarchs at the time, which included uh, Abramovich and Hordakovsky, who was later jailed for 10 years and served time in, in a, a gulag. So, so Putin said to the oligarchs, he said, listen, guys, it's my way or the highway. So you can keep your assets, which you acquired cheaply during the 90s privatizations, if you stick your nose out of my business. Abramovich listened, Hordakovsky didn't listen, and he paid the price. Yeah, and he became a, a governor in a very small region of Russia for eight years. Um, so after that, he then sold his interests from Sibnet to Gazprom. That's where he started to accumulate the real wealth, isn't it? Absolutely. So that $7.5 billion, uh, that he, he sold for, for Sibnet was used to fund a whole massive portfolio. And he set up his own sort of private sort of equity house called Millhouse. And he spent money on Chelsea, of course, uh, buying hotels, property. He bought a stake in Yevras, which is a steelmaker, which is still listed in London. And he bought a gold miner, which he sold last year for a very tidy profit, Petro Pavlovsk, and a whole array of other interests. Now, that um, purchase of Chelsea that you mentioned there for 150 million in 2003 was the thing that would actually make him a household name in, in this part of the world, if you like. Not something you'd expect for um, an average billionaire recluse from Russia. What do you think his motivation behind that purchase in 2003 was? I think when he bought it, it was seen as a calling card, an entrance into the London Grad Society. So he was a pioneer and he's been followed by many others. And you've had other oligarchs like Uzmanov, who since bought stakes in Arsenal. And then you've had minigarchs who, who bought take control of Portsmouth and other smaller clubs. So it's kind of like a football club is like a calling card. But it's also he probably saw it as an insurance policy. Hmm. So in case of geopolitical relations broke down, he could always say, listen, I have this piece of real estate. It's very important to people in the UK and in London, in West London. So you can't touch me hmm. up until this point. Yeah, I read an interview that he did uh, some years ago wh when he just purchased the, the club and he said that, you know, he looked forward to moving to the UK because he valued the anonymity it would bring, um, unlike in Russia where you'd be looked at by the state. But he seemed to misunderstand the relationship between football and the press in the UK because he hasn't been anonymous since he got there. He's been heavily scrutinised, actually, hasn't he? Yeah, I think part of the problem is for uh, Abramovich, he's, he doesn't like to give interviews since I've been covering uh, Russia and, and I lived in Russia from 2006 to up until three years ago, he's only ever given two interviews. Wow. So he, he likes his privacy, but then that cultivates interest. Mm. So he's become like a target for, for the tabloid press. 
and for the paparazzi who are fascinated by him because he tries to be enigmatic, he tries to be reclusive, which then ends up being the opposite. Jason, what has been Abramovich's role since the war has started? So it's really interesting, Mandy, because prior to to this conflict, uh, Abramovich was seen as somebody who was uh, a conduit behind the scenes. He, He wasn't very overtly political, but since this invasion of Ukraine by Russia, he has been a very public political figure. And so he, he has been to Kiev twice. Uh, the first time he was allegedly poisoned along with some of the Ukrainian um, uh, negotiators. Uh, he was in Istanbul at the end of March for peace talks, although there was, there was little progress. And then after the atrocities we heard in Bucha, he flew again to Ukraine to try to resuscitate peace talks. So he's put in more air miles than Santa at Christmas. We've seen a remarkable transformation from this shy retiring oligarch into somebody who is a key sort of middleman peacemaker between the Ukrainian side and Russia. And the interesting thing is Zelensky seems to trust Abramovich, maybe because they're both Jewish. And as we said before, Abramovich has these maternal grandparents on his mother's side who, who were Jewish and who fled the Nazis in the Second World War. So he seems to be trusted. He seems to be the the honest oligarch uh, in these peace talks. And what's the motivation behind his role here? Does he have any choice? Is Putin just forcing him into it? Or is it as an attempt by him to sort of protect his and salvage some of his assets? I think it's a bit of both, Mandy. So his his assets are under attack. Uh, his assets are being freezed, his, his equity holdings in, in Yevras and his other stakes in companies. His yachts are, are being moved from, from Barcelona and other parts of Europe to, to ports in Turkey. And I, but I also feel as well with this uh, Ukrainian heritage, he feels an obligation, uh, like, like some others actually who've spoken out. There's other oligarchs who've spoken out against the, the conflict. We saw yesterday Oleg Tinkov, uh, who, has, who has some sort of Ukrainian connections as well with his business, uh, with one of the biggest banks in Russia, speak out against the war. And you had Alec Perov, who's the one of the founders of Luko, the second biggest oil company. They've also spoken out a bit against it. So there's a bit of both. It's trying to save their own bacon, but also some of their, some, they have something on their conscience. And talk to me, Jason, a little bit about the sanctions that are against him. In particular, I'd like to learn your views on what's happening with Chelsea Football Club now. Uh, well, Chelsea Football Club, he proposed Abramovich shortly after the sanctions would be put into a trust so the proceeds of the sale would eventually apparently go towards rebuilding uh, Ukraine and also towards the victims of, of the invasion. And, and, and secondly, there's a suggestion there that perhaps the proceeds could go into an escrow account, which would be frozen for quite some time. And so eventually, maybe he could see some of, the, some of the benefits from that. But it's unclear at the moment who's going to buy Chelsea FC and what's going to happen to the, to the profits. And just looking at his net worth, what it might have been before the war in Ukraine, how has this all affected him? So, Mandy, uh, Abramovich's net worth, uh, estimated by Forbes magazine in Russia, was roughly £17 billion uh, prior to the invasion. With the collapse in the equity market, especially uh, with Russian companies, his, his, his paper worth is now estimated to be roughly about £10 billion. So he's taken quite a hit. 
Um, I just wanted to ask your opinion on how the British government have treated Abramovich. Um, I think they look very naive to not have acted against him before the Crimean invasion in, in 2018. But eventually they did delay his visa, um, never actually refusing it. Why don't you think they acted against him? Um, I think because uh, Londongrad and the wealth that the mm. Russians have cultivated over the last 15 years is so immense. So there's a whole industry. There's, there's uh, accountants, there's lawyers, there's uh, pure advisory firms. So there's thousands of people who are employed in the city of London to look after the needs of these wealthy Russians. So they didn't want to kill the, kill the goose. No. So... Who did he marry? Uh, where are his children? And where does he live now? So um, Abramovich uh, is now separated from his, his last wife, Dasha Zukova, who's the daughter of another oligarch. His first wife, incidentally, was uh, an air stewardess from Aeroflot, just like Vladimir Putin's first uh, wife. And as far as where he's living now, so he is trying to buy uh, a large property in Dubai, where many of the Russian oligarchs are now, have now decamped to, but he still has property in Tel Aviv in Israel, of course in London, which he can't touch, and I believe in America. And his children, uh, one of his daughters, I saw tweeted uh, some interesting comments when the U- war in Ukraine started. Yeah, like the, a lot of the children of the elite are very, very um, active on Instagram and on social media and some of them even would be supporters of Alexei Navalny, the opposition figure, mm. who is now behind bars for the past year. So they, they've since been silenced, just like um, uh, Dmitry Peskov, is, uh, his daughter as well, was piping up on social media, expressing her displeasure towards the war. Jason, as you mentioned earlier, he's become quite the patron of the arts uh, in the UK, and he's also invested heavily in charities in Israel and other countries. But do you think he'll ever quite manage to shake off the journey of what brought him to this success? No. Well, I think he's been so uh, preoccupied with becoming wealthy and having all the trappings of wealth. So we're we're seeing uh, latterly his his interest in peacemaking is is, is almost quite a novel thing. But uh, perhaps because he's now 55, he's wondered about maybe about his personal legacy and maybe thinking back to uh, his, his grandparents who fled the Nazis after World War II from Ukraine. OK, powerful ally of the Kremlin or international peace broker. His legacy, as you say, is not quite finalised yet. There might be yet another chapter in his book. But for now, we leave it there. That's Jason Corcoran, journalist and expert on Russian affairs. Jason, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. I hope you found the topics interesting and informative. Now, why we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. If you have any suggestions about topics that you'd like to hear covered on the show, you can send them to takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to today's guests and to producer John Fardy with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.